people are saying yes to things that they could say no to. People are hiding their weaknesses and hindering connection and growth. People are avoiding difficult conversations and not achieving real understanding and being efficient. And people are holding back their unique perspective, which creates blind spots and stops people from unlocking innovation. And when we do all those different things, we're doing what I call wearing a mask. Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance. Scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm having an amazing conversation with Michael Brodie-Waite. Michael did a fantastic TEDx talk, Why Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts. In it, he draws on his own experience as a recovering addict. He was a friend's couch away from being on the street. He went into a 12-step process. And during that process, he discovered that really there are three principles that he could then take out of that and apply to his own leadership in business. He had a phenomenal career with Dell. And then he left Dell to co-found a healthcare SaaS business in Quicker, which they, having been got into the Inc. 500, they exited in 2015. And what he understands to be true is that leaders should live a mask-free life. He believes that we all spend about 500 hours a year managing how people perceive us. And if we could just turn up, be authentic, and have difficult conversations, our businesses would run better. We'd be able to teach our businesses, not only our employees to be better at work, but to be better human beings. We'd have great places to work. And not only would our lives be more successful, but also more fulfilling. An amazing conversation with a great human being. I enjoyed it immensely. I'm sure you will as well. I'm Michael Brodywaite, and I am the founder of the Mask Free Movement and a recovering addict and a recovering entrepreneur. Thanks for joining me today. What The Mask Free Movement, what's, what's that? I think that most leaders in this world and most people in this world uh, hide their true selves behind a mask because they think it's going to make them more successful. And I'm on a mission to make it so that people know how to take off their mask and show their true selves and unlock the competitive advantage that they were born with. Huh. Why do you think people hide? What, what do, are we taught to hide? We learn it from our leaders because our leaders are successful and they are using an outdated leadership model, command and control leadership, which made sense when you were on an assembly line or on a battlefield and all decision making was centralized and a few people had all the information to make decisions. But in the last 25 years, we've transitioned from a world with no connection and a services economy that requires connection to be successful. And as a result, we're pushing decision making further and further to the point of where we're servicing a customer. And actually our competitive differentiator is how well we connect with other humans. And so pretending that you're more than human 
and that you're perfect and that you don't have weaknesses and all that kind of stuff, hiding behind the mask so that people will follow your strength isn't actually leading anymore in this modern world. It's, it's following. Oh, well, and even as people keep talking about robots taking over people's jobs, the one thing they can't do is, is emotion. And so any competitive advantage not based on emotion must be fatally flawed. I mean, I think so. I mean, it used to make sense, right? If you're a general on a battlefield and you can't have your soldiers second guessing your orders when they have to go into the battle. But in today's modern world, I mean, the leaders that we are following have the opportunity to truly inspire and connect with us. And they don't do that by pretending that they're not human. They do that by embracing their humanity. Who's your, who's your best example? Of a leader that does this well? Yeah. Brene Brown. And I think that, so while Brene Brown's work is specifically on this topic, I think that there are a lot of speakers and authors and motivational people um, and self-help gurus that are willing to tell you how they'll help you be broken and and fix you, but they're not going to show you their warts. They're not going to, I don't think Tony Robbins has ever gone on stage and said, you know what, I've really messed up and here's where I'm really struggling and then shared that. And I think because of the nature of Brene's work, I don't know her personally, maybe by the way that she's wired, she shares her journey authentically as she's sharing how we can as well. And she's not pretending that she's stronger. She just has more experience. Uh-huh. And so how do you, how do you get to be here? What's, what's your journey to this business of helping people be authentic? Yeah. So for me, it started when I was in active addiction as a drug addict and alcoholic. And for me, I was in college and I didn't know how to deal with life and life's terms. My story isn't that different than most addicts. Um, We all have pretty tragic stories. And so for me, you know, it ended with me getting kicked out of college, me losing my home, me getting my car repossessed, me getting fired from my job. And sitting there, the only thing holding me from a street was my buddy's couch and throwing up blood and and pretty much concerned and believing that I'd be dead by my 30th birthday. And so for me, the inflection point was when I got clean. And when I got clean and I went to rehab and I learned recovery, I learned a whole new way to live, uh, which taught me a whole new way to lead, which led to a really successful career. What are the elements in there that taught you or or brought this because like, you know, look, as you say that your story, you say your story there, you know, you're an addict, lots of addicts are like this, but how many addicts recover and end up with successful careers? There are a lot that are successful. I'm not unique in that I'm trying. So I have a, you know, as you know, the Ted talk, great leaders do what drug addicts do. And so I wrote a book called great leaders live like drug addicts. And when I talk about the book, I'm not the first person to write a book on how to be a great leader. That's been done before. And I'm not the first addict to talk about their story. That's been done before. But what has never been done was taking the process that addicts use to recover that's been working for millions of addicts over 80 years and translate that into a leadership framework that allows anyone to truly become a great leader. And I was just really lucky that when I was in rehab and I joined a 12-step program, I was taught a set of principles that teach you how to lead yourself. But most of the addicts that I know in recovery practice that in recovery, practice that in their lives, but they don't apply it explicitly as a leadership skill set. And then when I founded my startup, they don't, no one that I know of has ever taken that and built an entire corporate culture around 
this stuff. And so I think I was just really lucky that I was able to take something that's been working for 80 years in one context and bring it into another one because I don't have a college degree. I, don't, I didn't know what I was doing. So it's almost like I was fortunate to not have any preconceived notions as to what great leadership was. And to me, the best leaders in this world that I know are the sponsors in 12-step programs. And they lead in a very, very different way. And that led me to leading in a very different way with my company. Because we, well, it's funny. I remember being at a conference a few years ago and somebody put up a slide saying the world is full of shit leaders and the next generation of leaders are going to be shit because they're learning from all of you and you're all shit. (laughs) And that goes back to your question about why do we wear masks? It's like by the time we get to the arena, the rules have been set because those that are successful are wearing the masks. I mean, how many politicians are answering questions uh, with, I don't know? right? Like the people that we elect to represent us, how many of them are truly just showing us their humanity? But the truth is that you and I, and most of that, anyone listening to this, we have someone that we trust the most in this world, someone that we feel incredibly connected to, and it probably isn't our boss. It's probably someone that's walked through life with us and shown us their weaknesses and their fears and their insecurities. And that makes it okay for us to as well. And then we get to talk about them and we get to lead each other through life. And then we throw people into the deep ocean and work. And we say, hey, you can't have any weaknesses. You can't be a human. Don't show that stuff. And then we want you to improve and we want you to grow and we want you to feel connected to other people. And we don't connect in our strength. We connect in our humanity. And so when you were learning from the the sponsors in your program, what uh, it's fascinating that you... I don't know, this whole thing ends up you learning a new set of skills because you're you're not in the workplace. And you see that that, you know, really puts you on the outside with with a different set of tools. But what what were the are, are the sponsors all uh former addicts as well or recovered addicts or Yeah, so I went to a 12-step program and, and there are 12-step programs all around the world and there's a bunch of different ones and they all operate a little bit differently. But in my experience, the the common thing is is that The two qualifications for a sponsor are, I am an addict and I have worked the steps and I'm willing to guide you through them. The difference between a sponsor and when we think of like a CEO is a sponsor doesn't lead by telling you what to do. They lead by showing you what they did. And so by definition, that means that they have to acknowledge where they started, which was a sucky place. And then they use this process and the big thing about sponsors is we we guide through our, I'm a sponsor now, we guide through our experience. And so that means that we share the good and the bad because we're not the expert. We're not the awesome person. The 12 steps are, or in my book, the three principles of mask-free living are the expert. And all we do is share our experience using them. And that creates an even playing field where we're just on the same level. And it's just an addict sharing their experience. You, the, what you describe there seems to me more of a coach than a manager. Nobody, your sponsor has no authority over you to tell you what to do. They can only, I guess, ask you questions and they know that the difficult time you're having, they've been there. So there's some empathy. Yeah. And, you know, just because I know your background to some extent, I don't know all of your background, but at my company, we installed the Rockefeller Habits and so that is an that is a business example of a process that is what facilitates greatness. And then someone comes in and they they share it. The difference is a coach is not the manager and the expert and the authority, but a sponsor is an even closer step to humanity than even a coach. 
because the the sponsor is literally saying i'm an addict and i just do this stuff too and then they literally are volunteering when they go through stuff with their sponsees and the people around them because if they can lead themselves through hard moments they create automatic leadership by showing people their darkest moments and how they apply the process to those darkest moments their sponsees the people in meetings whatever they create automatic leadership in the people around them. And that's and that has that requires that they kill the notion that they're on the same pedestal. So for I'll give you I'll tell you a really quick story. So I had a sponsor, my first sponsor, and he told me, Mike, never put me on a pedestal. I will fall right the hell off. And I was like, okay, that's great, Chuck. But then I followed everything he said and I loved everything he was doing. And so a year into my recovery, we were at a holiday party. And he was attacking the dessert table like a fiend. Okay. He was just shoving desserts in his mouth everywhere. And I was like, wait a second. He's not using drugs, but he's acting like a true addict. And this is the guy that I'm trusting to make sure that I'm able to live. And I called him and I'm like, Chuck, I don't know if I can follow you anymore because you're clearly letting your disease of addiction act out. And he said, Mike, what did I tell you? Never put me on a pedestal. Right now, I'm going through an issue with sugar. And maybe as you and I go through this together, we will learn together and we will see how we can apply this process together. And there's a level of humility and humanity that goes into being a sponsor where our worst moments are the opportunities to lead other people by leading ourselves. So I, I just one of the things that strikes me as you're saying that is the difference there between the, I don't know, it's like politicians often say one thing and do another. Whereas here, the guy is at least being authentic. You know, he, he, he said from the outset, look, don't put me on a pedestal. And then when you called him out and he's like, I'm only doing what I told you I was going to be doing, which is the best I can. Exactly. And it was scary. Like everybody else, I was trained to believe my leaders are infallible. And so if, if he was that broken as a human, how screwed am I if I'm trying to follow him? And then I realized, and so that's one of the biggest things is that nobody has all their stuff together. Nobody has all the answers. Everybody's got their stuff. And the only thing between a recovering addict and a normal person out there is, is that we have a dedicated practice into how we manage that and talk about that stuff. And so what are the um, the 12 steps you, you've got in your book? You've got three principles, but is that three of the 12 or did you, how did you get to the three principles? What? Are there 12 steps that you think are more applicable to leadership? The 12 steps are specifically written and designed to help those that are in addiction. And so what I did with this book was I took, I've studied a lot of 12 step literature. I'm a very active member of my program and I've done a lot of different leadership stuff. So I've been a leader in retail. I've been a leader in corporate at a fortune 50 company. I founded an Inc 500 company. I've led a nonprofit. And so I took all those experiences and I integrated them into a simpler set of three principles that are designed for anyone, regardless of whether they're an addict or not, that are more about how do you take the mask off and lead yourself and live and lead mask free. And that's a specific application that I had of using the 12 steps in leadership. And so it's specific. It can apply to everything the same way the 12 steps do, but most people that don't need a 12-step program don't need a 12-step program. So I simplified it and I made the principles very simple and actionable. And so like the three principles are practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome, and do uncomfortable work. There's more stuff that we do in the 12-step program, but these three are applicable to anybody. And so how do you, I guess in, in your businesses where you've, where you've used these, how do they 
how do they manifest themselves in behaviors and day-to-day actions? You know, if I'm a CEO listening to this, what, what should they be doing differently? Yeah. And that's a great question because one of the things that we talk about is, um, there are, and I mentioned Brene Brown earlier, there are people that talk about what authenticity and leadership is and why it's valuable, but there is nobody showing people how to actually do it, how to systematically apply it. And that's what the system is designed to do. And so one of the things I've, I've worked with really big companies like Google and Dell, I've worked with startups, I've worked with nonprofits. And the thing that's common, um, I, I had this one week where I, I did a speaking engagement for a 100 person startup and then a 10,000 global company. And they're all dealing with the same things. And that is that people are saying yes to things that they could say no to. People are hiding their weaknesses and hindering connection and growth. People are avoiding difficult conversations and not achieving real understanding and being efficient. And people are holding back their unique perspective, which creates blind spots and stops people from unlocking innovation. And when we do all those different things, we're doing what I call wearing a mask. And so this manifests in specific areas in businesses. One of my biggest things around this is it sounds new agey, but this is actually next level. Um, there's a difference. There are concrete outcomes that I've been able to understand and assess that stem from us wearing the masks. And so what what do you do to help build that? Because it sounds very much like the sort of the trust-based, vulnerability-based trust conversations I might have with CEOs and teams based on the work of Lencioni. You know, that sort of inattention to results comes all the way down to the fact that we're not prepared to have conflict we're having fake harmony. You know, that's what you're saying there. You know, people are people are not saying no, they're saying yes. And then actually they're even though they're saying yes, then they're not doing it because they didn't mean yes, they meant no. What do you do? How do you how do you help teams through this? So in my book, I talk about the fact that I believe that it's not just that we wear masks, it's that we are addicted to them. And by diagnosing it as an addiction, we actually solve for the problem that everybody talks about wanting to be authentic, but people really struggle to do it. We are addicted to the mask. And so what that requires is a solution that's similar to what helps addicts get free. And so in my book, I talk about a mask-free program where you have the system, which is the principles, and then you have a sponsor that guides you through how to apply that system, which a CEO can be. Um, And then you have a society that reinforces those principles and shares their experience applying them themselves. And so if you're out there right now and you're a company and you're saying, I want everybody to be authentic and vulnerable, I love Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team. The definition of trust was so helpful to me. Uh, He's one of my favorite authors in the world. But for me, what I learned is we have a lot of programming that's going on outside of the walls of a company and that's happened our entire lives that we have to offset. And it's not as simple as, hey, just be, just trust people, just tell the truth, just, just be uncomfortable. By the time we are four years old, 90% of us are taught how to lie and we do it. So there's a lot of programming that we have to offset and that requires intentional structure and an intentional tool set that allows them to do that. And I guess some people aren't prepared for the discomfort. No, we are taught how to do hard work. We're taught how to do smart work. We are not taught how to do uncomfortable work. Uncomfortable work is emotional. It's that pit in the middle of your stomach when you have to have a bad conversation that you're scared of. And we see people all the time go do eight hours of hard work because they're avoiding 10 minutes of uncomfortable work. You've probably seen this a million times with people that are avoiding performance management, right? Or talking about something that doesn't work in the strategic plan. 
it requires uncomfortable work. And most of the things that we wish we could stop doing in our lives can be traced back to a lack of willingness to do the uncomfortable work. Oh, look, I remember when I first joined the executive team at Pier 1, we did a, as an executive team, we were spread across Canada, the US and the UK and multiple cities. So we used to do a, a week, a quarter offsite just to work on the relationships in the team. And the first time I turned up, I think it got to lunchtime and I hadn't spoken and the CEO said, Dom, you're being very quiet. And I'm like, man, this is just come by our, you're, you guys are killing me. I, <laughs> I, I, when I feel more comfortable, I will speak, but I found it incredibly uncomfortable because I'd never been in a work environment where you were being asked to be vulnerable with people you didn't know. I mean, normally you're just asked to go in and get your elbows out and, you know, fight and, you know, look after yourself and stab other people in the back. Because that's what you learn. That's what you learn to do in large, large corporates. Well, so one of the things that you asked is like, so if you're a CEO, what do you do? And 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 I pointed to the book and the, and the program. But there's a really simple thing you can go do right now, and that is go first. So if you want people to be vulnerable, if you want people to not hide their weaknesses, if you want people to say no, if you want people to not hold back their unique perspective, and you're a leader. Go first. I know that like I love Simon Sinek and he has a book, Leaders Eat Last. But you know what? Authentic leaders go first because when they are in the position of power and they are asking people to be vulnerable, a lot of time we as leaders are taught, you know, let your people talk and then you talk. But you have to set the tone. And that's what a sponsor does in a 12-step program. It's a completely different paradigm. You just, you need to set the tone. And so like when I did this, um, I did a workshop for a team at Google one of the reasons that they had more trust and connection at the end was because the executive that was the leader in the room, she went deeper than everybody else. And as a result, she said it's safe just by doing so. Yeah. So often when you do a group session, the tone is set by the person, the person who goes, who goes first. Yes. And if you're the leader and you don't say anything and you let someone else do it, or worse, I had a session with um, a leader of like 500 people. And when we put him in a position to take the mask off, he did the thing where it was like, oh yeah, I used to struggle. I struggled way back then. And, and I had a bad moment. And I'm like, no, mask-free leadership is not, I had a struggle back then. It's I'm in the middle of the crap right now. I have no idea how this story ends, but watch what I do. And that is a very different level of vulnerability, but that communicates unequivocally to your team that you are committed to them being real. And let's, and let's talk about it being kumbaya. So, so I've assessed like 500 leaders. So CEOs to frontline employees, to entrepreneurs, to whatever. They approximate that they are spending 500 hours a year managing optics, managing their mask. And Harvard Business Review says the most scarce resource inside companies today in a services economy is time. And so if everybody's talking about how they don't have time professionally and personally, you're trying to talk about how do you lead people and they're wasting 500 hours a year, one person times however many people in your organization trying to look good in a room when they don't need to, uh, secretly struggling with the Excel spreadsheet because they don't know how to do a pivot table and they're scared to ask for help, not performance, managing the person, attending a meeting they think is BS and then you know managing the meeting and then doing all the action items after the meeting because they want to save face. Like whatever it is, not having the hard conversation with the customer, like whatever it is, these things, 
we talk so much about execution and strategy and we don't talk enough about the things that go unsaid that hold those things back. And they come back to be us being human and us trying to survive by being liked. And if you can lead yourself and overcome that desire to be liked, you can actually truly represent your authentic perspective. You can lead yourself and you can have a, an impact that most people can't. And in a world where we're now a services economy, it's not about a bunch of manufacturing plants. It changes the game, like your ability to connect with customers, employees, partners, investors, you name it, it completely changes the game when you have a differentiated level of mask-free leadership at the table. And then imagine a whole organization like that. Completely. I've worked with some organizations who claim to be authentic and are still struggling with what does that mean? But I, when you describe people saying what they think, people not having to manage perceptions of other people's perceptions, I, all that just, I'm just exhausted. Just, I'm not even doing it. And I'm just exhausted I thinking know. about how much effort it could possibly be. It's exhausting. It is. I mean, it's physically tiring. It's mentally tiring. It's emotionally tiring and it's isolating. Yeah. And I think that if you can get it right in an organization, then the speed with which the organization will move. So I mean, it's not just that outward perception or outward expression of sort of uh, an emotional maturity, but it's also just inside the organization, the speed with which things happen. You know, you trust people, things just speed up. Yes. So my startup in Quicker, I would love to tell you that we were an Inc. 500 company because I'm so amazing, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. We had never worked in healthcare before. We had never started a company before. We had no investors. We started in the middle of the recession. No one on our team was Ivy League. We had no patents. We raised no, uh, we had competitors at 150 million in venture capital and we didn't have any. The competitive advantage that we had was an entire mask free culture. And so that meant that if you were the intern, you could say no to me or a customer if that was the right thing without any fear. That meant that I, as the CEO, would go to my team every week and declare my weakness proactively that I need to work on. And as a result, everybody was inspired to do the same. So we not only grew as professionals really fast, we grew as people. We had the hard conversations and they were hard, they were difficult, and they were really uncomfortable, but we valued the truth over comfort. And then our unique perspective, we would, I had a, a poster up on the wall that was called the Idea Graveyard. And it was all my ideas. It was all my ideas. And, 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 and so my, my point was, Anytime anybody had a perspective that was unique, that was the thing that I wanted to hear. So anytime someone was new, I'd be like, you are now the CEO of the company. I want your perspective. And so everybody's unique perspective was heard. And that made us cut down on serious blind spots, unlock serious innovation, take seven meetings and actually do one. And we didn't have any decipherable competitive advantage other than we were extremely efficient, extremely creative. And we were able to live and lead mask-free as a team. And then the really cool thing is uh, it beca we became the best place to work. We grew 20,000%, all these things. Because when you have people that are so fed to live mask-free at their work, and they spend 40 hours a week practicing the muscle memory skill of living mask-free, they get to go do it out in their real life. Like I still have my teammates, and we sold the company in 2015, that I still talk to where they're talking about living and leading mask-free, they learned a skill set that, that is so much better than a catered lunch. 
that is so much better than even as much as I love mindfulness, bringing in a mindfulness teacher. It's it's completely different. I used to say the same thing to Gary, the CEO at Pure One. I would say, I can't believe it's taken me this long to learn these tools. I wish I'd known them, you know, 15, 20 years ago because they work, they work at work, they work at home. People leave work on a Friday having been at a great place to work, which is, you know, CEOs have a choice to create a great place to work or not. But you then spill that happiness into communities at the weekend. Yeah. If you can nurture the person inside the professional, you win. People, you know, it has an impact on their families. It has an impact on how they bring up their children. There's nothing negative. So you exited in 2015, you sold the business? Yes. Did you? Did it go for a gazillion dollars? Uh, gazillion. I'm not even sure how many zeros that is. So the answer is no. <laughs> we had a great exit. It was, uh, we were um, 65 times earnings and uh, we sold to a public company. And we were bootstrapped the entire way. And the truth is, is that it was one of the saddest days of my life. Uh, I, I didn't want to sell the company. I end my book with a chapter called The Tale of Two Divorces. And, I, and it talks about me going through a divorce with my wife and my business partner and having to sell the business. And I'm not going to give it away, but it was bittersweet. At the same time, no one wants to hear anyone complain about selling a business and getting a bunch of money. And so for me, the focus in the entire process was making sure that the company was successful post-exit, that every single teammate was retained and that they got a piece of what we made as, a, as we sold the company. And then I got to go on and do some other things. And that's led me to what I'm doing now. So ultimately ended up being the right thing. I just had to trust the, the larger plan. Uh-huh. Okay. It's funny that I speak to so many, I speak to so many CEOs who exited, who, who find that a bit of sweetness in the exit because particularly if you've created a culture mask-free culture i was going to say it feels like a family but I, that's not what i mean because quite often families aren't mask-free but do you know what i mean there's a there's a closeness and uh, there's a closeness and a bond there i can absolutely see that the sadness in that one of the ways we we're able to build a family-like culture so december uh, four years after we sold the company, we were having dinner, all of us, the ex-employees. And one of them was remarking it. There's like 30 of us. They said someone could not understand why they were going to an alumni dinner for a company that they worked for. Um, they understood alumni for college or for high school, but alumni for a company that you worked for. And, you know, the most interesting thing happened. I set out not to create a family-like culture. Because I thought that saying that the company is a family is wearing a mask. It's BS. It's not true. You have family and it's not who you work with. And so I was real, I would be straight up with people I'd be interviewing and be like, I'm not trying to build a family here. At the same time, what I want to do is honor the fact that you have one. So I want to give you an experience that makes you a better human. And as a result, I think that you'll enjoy working here. But as a byproduct, we felt a level of connectivity that to your point, a lot of people didn't feel in their families. So we did create a family-like atmosphere because there was a level of connection in that mask-free culture that a lot of us didn't have in our own uh, nuclear families. But ironically, the way to achieve what we want most often is doing the opposite or surrendering, surrendering the outcome of what we want. What came to mind there as you were talking is I was chatting to Paul Manuel uh, last year about remote working. And I said to him, Paul, you know, we were chatting because something had been in the news about remote working. And he said, Dom, he said, we didn't have a problem with remote working because nobody wanted to work at home. 
He said people would rather come to the office and be in the office with the people that they worked with than work at home. And he said the companies that have a problem with remote working, people are trying to get away from the people they work with. That's why they don't want to come to the office. And it hadn't, it just, you know, it just hadn't occurred to me because I just hadn't seen it. Um, so uh, let me ask you a couple of other questions. What is it that you now know that you wish you could, not wish, because that says there's a sense of you, you may be sadness or whatever but you know is there something you know now that if you went back in time it might be it might be humorous or something might change or yeah i think that probably the biggest thing is that i i wish i had known that my unique perspective was the most important thing i spent so much of my life trying to fit in and trying to be what other people wanted me to be and People are like, oh, don't worry what other people think. Well, that's actually BS. We worry about what other people think. Like it's a biological survival mechanism. You can't change that. What I wish someone had told me was you can learn a skill to walk through that fear and that your competitive advantage isn't what other people are doing. It's something that is buried inside of you. I mean, on my, on my TED talk, my TEDx talk, I made a big mistake in my talk at the beginning and nobody commented on it. Nobody knows. <laughs> I wore flip-flops. I, was say, I, didn't know, I didn't notice you made a mistake. Yeah, I know. Only my wife knew and she was cringing in the audience. But I wore flip-flops. And if you look at the comments on my TEDx talk, that's like the most polarizing aspect of my talk. I have, I'm, I'm giving a talk that says great leaders do what drug addicts do. And the most polarizing component of that is my flip-flops, is my footwear. <laughs> It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> and the thing is, is that if I hadn't learned this skill, I'd be worried about, uh, I actually had a professional, a speaker coach call me and she's like, I thought you gave one of the best talks ever. Uh, but if you want some professional advice, I suggest you go on with shoes. And I'm like, I'm giving a talk about being authentic, like not just authentic, rigorously authentic. And I wear flip-flops all the time. I don't know if it's my feet are hot. Like, I don't know. But if I had known that, I'm doing something right when people are, are, are criticizing me. If I had known that I'm honoring my unique perspective when that happens, I mean, I have to use coaches and, and, and tools and safeguards to make sure I'm not, you know, going completely off the rails. And then, you know, once I got in recovery, I really wish someone had told me that being an addict isn't a stigma. If you enter recovery, it can be a freaking superpower because you get to learn how to do this stuff that we're talking about right now for free with tons of people that are masters at it. Every company I've worked at, other than the one that I led, um, there was more experience and skill level in living and leading mask-free in a 12-step meeting than there were in the companies that I worked for. Yeah. Because once people have been broken down, I guess there's, you know, what's the point in not being vulnerable? Yeah. You know, you've got, at that point, you've got nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. And hey, what one thing, one other thing. So you said, what's the one thing? I'll, I'll give you a succinct answer. I wish that the little me knew that there aren't any adults in the room that actually know what they're doing and you have to become your own adult. <laughs> I wish that that's what I had told myself because that is the truth. Even today, I keep looking for adults in the room and then I realize for me, for my world, for my decisions, I'm it. Yeah. Don't tell anybody we're having fun here. <laughs> <laughs> right. Don't tell anybody we don't know what we're doing. What is a podcast? Who knows? <laughs> well, you know what you're doing, but I don't. <laughs> I only give the illusion of knowing what I'm doing. <laughs> what books have you read along the way? You've got a, nobody on the podcast can see, but we, I'm videoing, we're videoing this conversation and I can see you've got a, an amazing bookshelf behind you. What, if you had to pull two or three off the bookshelf, what would you share? 
Yeah. So I, I think the first two would be um, The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown and Daring Greatly by Brene Brown, which to me are just one big book of how to freaking change your life. They were the books that taught me that I wear a mask. She doesn't use those terms, but taught me that I wear a mask. And it was her books that gave me the freedom to use my 12-step methodology as a leader. And I would say if anybody was inspired by this concept of you represent your unique perspective, those two books are really, really, to me, they inspired me to fundamentally change my value system to harness what made me unique and valuable in the world. And then I, you mentioned the five dysfunctions of a team. I mean, it comes up in his other books by Patrick Lencioni. Just because it's a well-referenced book doesn't mean it's less impactful. I think that reading that book every couple times or, or you know, every couple of years is a really important practice because his definition of trust is one that I see most leaders not practicing. What, the vulnerability-based piece of it you mean or...? Yeah. Well, one of the things he says in it is, you know, you're not practicing trust that people aren't uncomfortable when you're communicating. And I think that using uh, discomfort as a benchmark is a really interesting way to gauge trust. Um, But I have found that it's a really great way to gauge trust because there's no way that you can have 10 talented human beings in a room and everybody says, oh, I agree. That's not reality. You don't do that with your significant other, your best friends. Well, oh, yes, I completely agree in this plan. 100% like, no, dude. Say something uncomfortable. Say, why are we even doing this? You know, say, say, should we be thinking about doing this other thing? Or, hey, did you actually do the research that you were supposed to do? Like, why can't we as humans just say all the things that are real in order to achieve a more real outcome? And I think he puts it really simply and really beautifully. And I love that he, Patrick Lencioni knows what he's doing, man. He writes a, a business book for business people. Every chapter is a page. So you feel really productive when you read it and every chapter ends with a cliffhanger. So you're like hooked in and it's a story. And so you're not like getting all these different, I mean, it's just, it's just a great book. Whenever I read his books, I just think, God, it must be so much harder to write it like this. You know, it's like, I have no idea how he writes it like that. (laughs) Like he's a, he's, he's like Stephen King, um, got together with Stephen Covey or or Jim Collins or something like that. It's, he's a, He's a freak in a positive way. And he's, uh, you know, what's really cool is he's representing his unique perspective because I bet when he did his first business fable, I bet that wasn't a very common thing. But now you see him everywhere. Also, I will give a, I will give a shout out to um, Scaling Up. If you are out there and you are saying, how do I scale a company beyond just what I can do as a founder? Learning the Rockefeller habits and implementing that system, I think, is um, game changing for a company that's trying to make the leap. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on here. I, I used it in both my companies. And your and and your stuff fits in that number one about the you know really about the leadership team and making that a high performing team. Yep, yep. Just by being human. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But rarely do you, as you say, do you see it? Do you see it every day? done by leaders no they don't do it but i'm on a mission to change that brilliant well look thank you very much indeed for your time today it's been great conversation yeah this has been awesome i'll just say if anyone's interested in the book they can go to michaelbrodyweight.com it comes out may 5th and if they pre-order they get the audiobook for free that's brilliant great to speak to you awesome Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. 
for all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>